My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Peter Gibbs. Depending on the details of a given collective struggle, and on the community or movement at its core, how people act together to create change can look very different. Even so, a lot of the skills and capacities to do that work can be quite similar across different struggles. By and large, most movements don't have good infrastructure or good practices for helping people build those skills and capacities as they start to get involved. A group that is trying to address that need is Organize BC, a capacity-building organization devoted to doing trainings, coaching, and community building to support progressive organizers across British Columbia and the rest of Western Canada. They're a project of an organization called the Global Youth Education Network Society. Organize BC has its origins in a group of environmental organizations on the West Coast. It was 2012 or 2013, deep in the years of the federal conservative government of Stephen Harper and its relentless attack on environmental protections. These groups were mulling over the grave question of why they kept losing. The organizations, Dogwood, Lead Now, Force of Nature, and One Cowichan, identified the Harper government as a main barrier, and they decided to intervene by empowering their supporters to engage in get-out-the-vote activities in the next federal election. They put together a project through which they trained hundreds of people in the relevant skills for that kind of campaigning. After the election in 2015, they took some time to reflect. They decided to go from being a relatively closed and narrow project to something more public and much broader. Organize BC then did the basic work of developing a website and an organizational profile, and they began to adapt their curriculum and expand their programming to make it relevant to a broader range of campaigns, movements, and communities. Today, the bulk of Organize BC's work is in-person trainings. This includes a standard two-day curriculum they call Organizing People Power Change. They have core programs on digital campaigning, building inclusive movements, and campaign storytelling. They also do versions of some of these things via online trainings, and they sometimes are able to offer customized trainings in specific contexts. As well, they have a few annual flagship programs. The Firelight Campaign School, in which a group of mostly new and young activists come together for a five-day summer camp-style intensive training. The Canroots West Conference. And a retreat each fall, in which organizers who are in the thick of campaigns can gather, discuss, and problem-solve. Though they still have strong ties to the environmental movement in BC, in the last four years, their work has moved far beyond that. They have done trainings with people involved in struggles related to Indigenous sovereignty, the labour movement, public childcare, gentrification, queer and trans communities, migrant justice, healthcare, and much more. Their next big event is the 2019 edition of Canroots West, which is happening on April 13th and 14th in Vancouver. 
Presenters will include organizers from groups like the Vancouver Tenants Union, Lead Now, Justice for Janitors, the Indigenous Land Defense Initiative Tiny House Warriors, and the Sunrise Movement. Uh, and that last one is the organization whose work has catapulted the Green New Deal into the national conversation in the United States. Their workshops and talks will touch on things like digital organizing in the labor movement, resisting the racism and white supremacy that gets reproduced within our movements, working for progressive change at the city level, building community solidarity in indigenous contexts, organizing with workers of color, and direct action. I speak with Gibbs about Organize BC and about their work to build skills and capacity among people engaged in activism and organizing in Western Canada. My name is Peter Gibbs. I live on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples in Victoria, BC. I am a co-director with Organize BC. And Organize BC, we are a capacity-building organization, and we do training, coaching, and community building to support progressive organizers and campaigners across BC and Western Canada to become more effective at driving progressive change. I first came into organizing through climate change. From the time I was 16, I worked at a summer camp for 10 years. That was a really formative part of my upbringing and learned a lot of values around environmentalism there through the camp and then also a lot of values around feminism from the staff. And one year when I was working there, my job was to teach environmental programs. I would do this activity where I would read the Lorax by Dr. Seuss to a group of kids in the woods and we would sit in a circle and I would read this story and then I would ask them, what do you think this story means? And the kids understood the metaphors in the story. They talked about clear cutting and sweatshops and all of the things that good people are supposed to do to make the world a better place. And I realized after a summer of doing that activity with kids from you know age eight to 16, that I wasn't doing most of the things that these children fundamentally knew were the right things to do. That led to a two-year project where I tried to have a sustainable carbon footprint as defined by the United Nations. And when I eventually accomplished that, I felt super isolated and alone and felt like I had done all the things that, you know, climate change documentaries at the time had said you should do, but the world hadn't changed. And it was that feeling of wanting to do something that actually felt effective that eventually led me to community organizing and organizing around climate. My early introduction to organizing was in the very early days, a little bit of work with the Green Party. And then I was one of the key grassroots organizers who organized around the 2009 proportional representation referendum in BC. And then from there, I organized on issues around pipelines and divestment. So I helped start a group called Dogwood, which is a major environment and democracy campaigning group in BC. I helped them start their grassroots organizing program as a volunteer, and then around the same time also helped to co-found a divestment campaign on my campus at UVic. So Organize BC came out of a group of environmental organizations in BC who around 2012, 2013, were asking themselves why they kept losing. It was the height of the Harper era of environmental protection rollbacks, where omnibus bills were wiping out decades of progress on key issues. So these organizations started to look around for examples of where progressives were winning. And at the time, you know, 10 years makes a really big difference in politics. One of the places they looked was south of the border, where the Obama for America campaigns in 2008 and 2012 had mobilized more than 2 million volunteers on election day in each case. And they wound up bringing up some trainers who were Obama campaign alumni to actually run some training for these organizations. 
these organizations collectively decided that they wanted to have an impact in the 2015 federal election with the thinking that they couldn't really accomplish anything while Harper was still in power. And so they wanted to empower their supporters to get out the vote in that election. And so those four groups, it was Dogwood, Lead Now, Force of Nature, and One Cowichan, started Organized BC as a collaborative training project. So in its first about two years of existence, Organized BC's primary focus was just working to train some of the staff, but mainly many hundreds of volunteers who volunteered with these organizations to increase their capacity and enable them to run a grassroots-led get-out-the-vote campaigns. After that election took place, there was a bit of taking stock. We asked ourselves, is the work that we're doing still necessary? And is there a broader audience of organizations and movements and communities that would want access to these resources and capacity building? And the answer on both fronts was yes. And so we undertook to start to do, at first, smaller steps to make our programs more accessible and relevant. So in the first couple of years, if you weren't part of one of these four organizations or you didn't know someone in one, you you couldn't really come to a training just because you couldn't find us. And so there was some very basic work, like coming up with a logo and a website and a description of our organization. So it was just a lot of basic nonprofit communications work to set up an organization that was easy to find and access. From there, we also started looking at standardizing our curriculum to be as widely useful as possible to as large a group of people. So in our first couple of years, a lot of our trainings were all focused towards canvassing campaigns. And so we did work with our curriculum to make it relevant to people running any kind of campaigns, whether or not they're doing door knocking or election work. One of the main activities that we do is a program called Organizing People Power Change, And it's a two-day curriculum that we run through what we call the five leadership practices of community organizing, which are telling stories, building relationships, structuring teams, strategizing, and taking action. And so we do highly participatory workshops where we introduce people to these frameworks, share case studies where they can see those frameworks in action, and then get people to practice telling stories, strategizing for campaigns, practicing volunteer recruitment skills. So that's one of the main things that we do and have been doing for the past five and a half years now. And then that also looked like expanding the scope of our programs. Our original course content, one of the things that came out of the community of practice that was building around that was actually a lot of those organizations were organizations that were in the environmental movement. They were primarily staffed and were run by volunteers who were white folks and were really asking questions around inclusion and equity. And so we developed our inclusive movement building workshop as a resource for organizations that wanted to shift their organization to being more inclusive. We introduced participants to anti-oppression frameworks and help them understand how to apply those within their own campaigns and social movements to reduce inequities that occur within movements. And over time, as we developed a stronger presence in communities, as we had more and more trainings, it became easier and easier to add a new program as people knew who we were and trusted that we could put on good work. In addition to those workshops in person, we also do a similar workshop online as an online training series. And we've also expanded out to do a broader range of trainings in the last few years. So we also run an online training series on digital campaigning. So using the digital campaigners toolbox to make social change. And then we also have a couple of specialty programs. So we run Firelight Campaign School, a five-day overnight program where we take mostly young and mostly new activists, but not always, to a summer camp for five days and give them a crash course on how to run campaigns. 
as we developed new programs, one thing that became really important to us was to design them in such a way that people who weren't our typical audience were going to access. And so as we expanded and, and developed Firelight Campaign School, one of the things we did was we brought in an external contractor to help us design the program to give a fresh perspective from outside our organization. And we hired this really wonderful facilitator and organizer, Tahia Ahmed, and she designed Firelight from scratch. And one of the things that she did that I think was really important and informative for that program in our organization was she actually thought about who we wanted to see in the program. So, you know, we wanted to see a lot of young people, a lot of folks who are members of marginalized communities and fighting on issues around marginalization. And so what she did is she went out and she found people who she knew, who she wanted to see come to the program. And she said, who would you like to train you? Like if you were going to come to a campaign school like this, who would you feel really excited to learn from? And then she got a whole bunch of feedback like that. And then those were the people that we brought on to run the program. And I think that was a really important step for us in terms of bringing on new voices and bringing in new communities to our programs. And then we also run a two-day organizing conference called Can Roots West. And that's actually coming up on April 13th and 14th in Vancouver. So what is it about how movements exist and how they happen that means there's a need for an organization like yours? We're trying to make sure that people don't have to reinvent the wheel. Our curriculum draws on lessons from social movements going back generations and really are sharing tools and best practices that are widely used in many social movements and tried and true. A lot of the people that we work with are folks who they're spurred to activism and organizing through a lived injustice. And prior to experiencing that or prior to deciding to organize against something, they may never have done that before. So by sharing these tools around community organizing and digital campaigning that are established best practices, we help people not have to repeat the mistakes that earlier generations of organizers had to make to learn the best ways forward to win on campaigns. I think another piece that's also helpful to frame up is we have people who will come to a workshop who this is the first time they've organized or they're very new to it, but we'll also have people who have been doing this for a very long time and have never received any formal training. And a reason why I find that is often very helpful for folks is that they're in this workshop with us and we're actually teaching them things that they already know how to do, but they hadn't put words or they hadn't given it a label to this practice that they already use. So what we're doing is we're helping provide them with tools to both have conversations with other organizers to collaborate, and then also to provide, I guess, like a theoretical frame around these things they already know how to do to help them be consistently effective in the future. I wonder if it might be helpful to define some of the terms that we're using. Like, maybe talk a bit about what a campaign is. I feel like the word campaign and campaigner and organizing and organizer can really get used in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different contexts. We're very careful to avoid as best we can telling people what a campaign is or what organizing is because it does mean different things in different communities. That said, when we do training, we define campaign as work focused towards achieving a particular change in the world and that that work takes the resources of a community and it focuses it towards trying to achieve something tangible and then you keep trying different things until you are successful. So on a campaign, often some of the important steps are articulating who you're organizing. So who is the community that's facing the challenge and actually bringing together a group of people. Early in that process, you also need to articulate what you're trying to achieve, what problem you're trying to solve, and then what the compelling story is that you're going to share with people to share your vision for change and have people come on board. 
At that point, you can develop a campaign strategy. In some instances, a campaign is what we call a power with campaign, where there's nothing actually stopping a group of people from solving the problem that they are facing. So for example, if you were a group of parents and the problem that there wasn't any affordable childcare, a power with approach would be to open a daycare and pool your resources that way. I think the more typical understanding of a campaign is the power over campaign, where there's actually a decision maker, a target that you're trying to sway and make them do what you want, often a level of government or a corporation. Then you're strategizing to try and understand what are the interests of that target? What are the levers you can pull to make them do what you want? And then what resources do you have or can you create that put leverage against that target? And then once you have a strategy, you're, you're delegating responsibility for different parts of that strategy to a network that's big enough to have the impact you need and implementing tactics. And tactics can be anywhere from door knocking and canvassing to direct action to media stunts. You could spend a whole podcast talking about tactical options. Tell me more about Organized BC's organizational form, its funding, that kind of thing. Organized BC, we're a nonprofit and we are a project of a charitable organization called the Global Youth Education Network Society. They also run a national youth leadership program called Next Up. And so we are a project of the Global Youth Education Network Society. Our first two and a half years of existence, we had startup funding from a foundation who wanted to see capacity building work done in the environmental sector. And then once that initial startup work was over, we had a significant change in our funding model. So today we have four main funding streams. We have some grants still for specific projects. We get in-kind and direct contributions as sponsorships for individual programs. So that might be someone giving us some money to pay for the logistics and food costs for a training. It might be someone giving us a venue rental in-kind. Pretty much all of our programs charge tuition. All of our programs also have sliding scales and or scholarships. So there's no program that we run that you can't access for free if you need to, although we do require a certain amount of tuition revenue from a given program to make it financially viable. And then finally, we also do fee-for-service work. So larger organizations, typically labor unions and larger nonprofit advocacy campaigns will hire us to train their members, volunteers, and staff. So yeah, those four different streams make up enough funding for us to keep, depending on the time, one to two full-time staff. And then we pay our trainers for their time. So we bring in trainers on specific projects. For a given program, we'll bring anywhere from one to four people in, depending on the scope of it. What groups and communities and movements have you worked in and with in the last four years? So as I said at the beginning, when we first started, we basically only worked with environmental organizations. And I would say that as we sought to make the capacity building work that we wanted to offer available to people outside the environmental movement, there was definitely work to have people in other movements see us as a place that was both relevant to them and then also was inclusive and accessible to them. I would say that we are a significantly more diverse organization in terms of the communities and movements that use our trainings and are a part of our community. So we've had folks from a whole wide variety of movements now take advantage of our trainings and participate in our community. So to name a few, we have folks who do work on Indigenous sovereignty campaigns, housing affordability, migrant justice, supporting youth in and aging out of foster care, working on affordable child care, public health advocates folks doing anti-gentrification organizing, people organizing in the queer and trans communities, 
a lot of folks from labor unions and doing work on workers' rights. And then we continue to have a lot of involvement from people in the environmental movement as well. So my sense is that organizations that do capacity building, like Organize BC, or that do other kinds of what you might call social movement infrastructure work, are much more common in the U.S. than they are in Canada, even once you account for the difference in population. Why do you think that is? I think that is much more present in the U.S., and I think that's a reason why, after the 2015 election, we really decided that we wanted to continue our work because we saw a big gap. So, you know, if you look to the U.S., yeah, there are numerous organizations doing this kind of capacity building. And I think that speaks to a few different things. I do think that much of it is related to size of population, but I think there's a minimum density required to make an organization like this viable under the funding model that we work under. So, you know, for example, when we run a training where a certain proportion of the funding needs to come from tuition, for example, you need a certain population density to be able to run a program like that. So there's some basic financial logistical reasons for that. I also think that the foundation and funding world in Canada, there's a lot fewer sort of politically comfortable funders in Canada as compared to the states. So I think you'll see a lot more organizations who are interested in driving progressive change with a funding model, feeling comfortable funding an explicitly political training organization who are doing similar work to us. And I think that in many ways, because of the two-party system in the U.S., there's a lot of the Democrat Party-aligned infrastructure that exists, and it's fairly straightforward who they work with. Whereas in Canada, any number of people here can call themselves progressive, and it's a bit complicated as to what their party affiliations are and then what advocacy organizations they work with. And then I think, lastly, a lot of the most significant leaps in new organizing methodologies in the last few years have been in the world of digital campaigning. And not only, you know, things like social media advertising, but also in a lot of the online to offline part of the work where you're using digital tools to enable real world conversations and getting people, you know, into the streets and at rallies, but using tech to help enable that. And the U.S. is just ahead of us on that, just period. Any platform that's rolled out is often rolled out first in the States. And there's just a deeper bench of talent in that civic tech sector there because of its proximity to other parts of the tech world. I think that plays a significant role in how then those skills get passed on to people because of their proximity to, you know, where it's coming from. And what other kinds of movement building infrastructure can you imagine that doesn't currently exist in Western Canada, but that you would like to see developed? I think there's two main umbrella categories that I can think of to answer your question. The first is coaching and follow-up. So a lot of the work that we do is we bring people in for one to five days of training with the idea that they will take the information and the skills they learn and use it on their campaigns to be more effective. And I think that one of the things that we have always and continue to struggle with is the right model to provide ongoing support to make sure that those skills actually get implemented. And then I think the other piece is actually just capacity building around access to the actual like nitty gritty tools that people need to do the work. So, you know, a couple of examples of the types of infrastructure I'm talking about, there's a lot of databases or CRMs where, you know, web platforms that help people manage their supporters list and send email blasts and all of that technology. And then also there's another organization that I'm a fan of that we work with is called New Mode, and they provide digital tools to make it easy for people to do online actions. Just like some of that techie stuff that the average grassroots campaigner doesn't know how to use and doesn't have the money to buy. Some of that stuff being more widely available out of the box 
for free with people whose job it is to help you use it. You mentioned your Canroots West conference, which is coming up not too long after this episode goes live. What are the plans for that? Canroots West is happening on April 13th and 14th on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples in Vancouver. It's a two-day conference where we bring people together from across the progressive movement to hear stories from each other's victories, skill up, and get ready to make change in the year ahead. This year, we have a bunch of trainings and case studies for organizers to deepen their skill set and learn from each other. So a couple trainings just that I'll share that I'm really excited about. We have a training from the Vancouver Tenants Union on how to organize your building and meet other tenants and build power with your neighbors. We have a training on how to use digital tools to move people from online engagement to offline action. And we have a workshop on how white supremacy shows up in the work that we do and how progressive organizations can identify and avoid repeating oppressive power structures within their campaign. We also have some really exciting case studies that are going to be shared. Lead Now is going to share the story of how 750 volunteers made 330,000 get-up-the-vote phone calls in our recent proportional representation referendum. So that's, I think, going to be a really exciting case study on using technology to enable volunteer and grassroots organizing at a large scale. We also have a case study from the tiny house warriors who are building and using tiny houses to do direct land defense against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I'm very excited about all of our keynote speakers, and there's a couple that are going to be speaking about exciting victories. So one of our keynotes is, his name is Charmarque Dubot, and he's a city councillor here in Victoria. And he became a Canadian citizen in July 2017, and a year and a half later, voted in his first election and was elected to council. And he and the progressive council majority that were elected to city council in Victoria are making progressive changes on a wide degree of issues. He's going to talk about, you know, how he got into the place that he is and then the challenges and successes that they're facing as they drive forward their bold progressive agenda at the local level. We're also going to have a speaker from Sunrise Movement. Sophia Zaya is the state director for Pennsylvania for Sunrise Movement, and they're the organization that brought the Green New Deal to the climate discourse. In under two years, in a movement started by people all under 26, have completely changed the conversation around climate action in the U.S. and North America. And so we're going to have Sophia come and talk about how they managed to do that and their plan to elect a president and Congress who will pass a Green New Deal. Another exciting victory that we're going to be hearing from is from a campaign called Justice for Janitors, and they're with SEIU Local 2. It's a national campaign that works to prevent contract flipping and privatization of custodial workers. And they do that by uniting workers from across a city or region to put pressure on employers. And so they successfully defended a contract flip that was going to be done by an organization that was providing custodial services for BC Hydro. And I'm really excited about that because it's a really amazing example of how precarious workers can actually be united into a very powerful position with their employer. You have been listening to my interview with Peter Gibbs of Organize BC. To learn more about their work, go to organizebc.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>